Welcome to the Rise and Search podcast. I'm your host, David Lovejoy, inviting you on an exploration of the global business landscape. Join me as we discover insights from world-class professionals. Sharad Sharma, thank you for joining us today. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Thanks for having me, David. Happy to be here. My name is Sharad Sharma. I am part of iSpirit Foundation, which is a non-profit technology think tank in India, roughly about 10, 12 years old. And this is my fourth innings in a way. And before this, I used to be entrepreneur and I built a telecom infrastructure company that's part of Cisco now. I used to live in the US at that time and I've been in the R&D world for a long time and worked for people like, you know, Yahoo, R&D, Veritas, AT&T, Lucent, Bell Labs and the like. And before that, I was a Unix kernel engineer, you know, when I was doing my engineering. So my identity of a Unix kernel engineer is still very strong. I still see the world through kernel eyes. And that's a little bit about who I am. Thank you for that introduction. For those who aren't familiar with that term, what does it mean that you look at the world through kernel eyes? You know, when we use, let's say, a Macintosh, a MacBook, which is what I'm talking to you, there is obviously the Mac OS and above the OS are the apps and below the OS is the Unix kernel. Similarly, if you use an Android phone, you know, Android is the OS, and above that are the apps. You know, whether you use an iPhone or an Android phone, the apps are more or less the same, but the OS is different. And below the OS, in the case of Android, is the Linux kernel. So it's a way of looking at the world and saying that, look, behind what you see, what is apparent, behind the curtain, there is infrastructure. There's plumbing and infrastructure that is there which determines what is it that you can do at the surface. So if you have good plumbing, then you can do lots of stuff at the surface. And if you've got poor plumbing, then only limited amount of things can be done. So being able to look at the world in that way gives you a different perspective about problems, how to solve them. And that's what some of us call as kernel thinking. That's an interesting explanation. Thank you for that. I see some similarities with us as people. You said you lived in the US for a while, you live in India, you go back and forth. Do you see a parallel with the kernel lens in terms of culture and language? Yes, and I think culture also behaves the same way, right? I mean, what's the physical manifestation of culture? Some people are more spiritual, you could say even more religious. Let's say people would live their life in a very ritualistic fashion. That would be the surface level. But behind that is some thinking. If you're Christian, you may really know the Bible well. If you're Hindu, you may really know the Gita well. But you could go one layer deeper because there are these basic principles, you could say the human universals that are there, which underpin practically all cultures in some ways, right? So so being able to identify those human universals becomes very interesting because no matter how they manifest, in a culture, you can still relate to them. And when you travel and you have these contrasts, they help you, that contrast helps you have this conversation with yourself about those universals, right? Because humans are more or less the same everywhere. So I feel travel is a fascinating way to understand these deeper human universals. Because when you, you know, go to a different culture or, or kind of transit from one culture to another culture as you pointed out many of us have learned to live in many cultures that kind of gives us an opportunity to understand the deeper human universals that are there because they are the same everywhere in some sense. Did any of that thinking go into your founding of iSpirit? Yes, yes, it did. Because, you know, India is rich in problems. <laughs> we like to say, you know, India is a big country. There are lots of issues that need to be resolved. And so when you look at a problem, the tendency is to try and resolve it at the highest level of abstraction. You know, think of it and say, look, I have a problem. Can I solve it with a new app? You know, if you take the phone analogy, and there are some problems that are resolvable by having a new app, but many of the problems are not resolvable by having a new app. They need a fix at the operating system level, and sometimes they need even a fix at the kernel level. So iSpirit thinking was that, you know, India has been trying to solve its problems for 50, 60 years. 
by simply at the app level without examining what needs to be done at the OS level and the kernel level. And that was the driving thought in setting iSpirit because we felt that, you know, the unsolved problems have remained unsolved because we are not tackling them at the right level of abstraction. And by looking at, let's say, financial inclusion differently at the OS and the kernel level, could we take a shot at solving it? Even though India has been at it for 50, 60 years, similarly, can we do that for health and so on and so forth? So it was absolutely a factor that went in and kernel thinking was a key part. If the hypothesis was that we should be able to tackle them much better if we think in that way. With you spending your time in different environments, does this help your perspective with combining legislation or policy or governance and the fast pace of technological innovation? Yes and no. I mean, I did spend time in the corporate world and the startup world. So that, I think, definitely helped me. But when we started iSpirit, we had, at least I had no experience with the policy world at all. You know, but one wonderful thing that you learn as a techie is that building technology or building products is a team effort. And so very early on, we realized that if we really wanted to experiment with solving problems in a new way, we needed to take a team approach. So we were able to co-opt people who came from a policy background. And that turned out to be extraordinarily useful. So our hypothesis was and is that really to solve these problems that I described to you, let's say financial inclusion in a place like India, which is really big, right? I mean, there are 300 million families in India to solve, deal with the diversity of India. There isn't one solution that is needed. You need many solutions. In other words, going back to our earlier metaphor, we need many apps. So really what you need to create is an ecosystem where the cost of creating an app or cost of experimenting comes down quite dramatically. And therefore, there are these fireflies lighting up the sky. And that's how we will solve these problems. And to create that ecosystem that would allow for so many experiments to happen, you would need public technology, which is you know the kernel stuff that we talked about. And you would also need policy and you will need private innovation. So right from the beginning, we had this mindset of fostering an ecosystem. We call it playground building. So we needed to build a playground where many players will come and play. We needed to talk to policymakers for that. And we hadn't done that, but we were able to, in our core team, then co-op people who knew how to do that. And that, I think, is the benefit of being a techie because you don't have solo techies anymore. You know, you used to have them 200 years ago, but now all tech is really a team effort. So you learn very early to play along with others. Interesting. I wonder also if you learn early on to spot your blind spots or spot what you can't do and delegate. Does that resonate at all with you being a a techie in a collaborative ecosystem? Yes, yes. And I think that's a prerequisite to good teamwork, right? Because if you have self-knowledge, even in a startup, you know, we have this slightly corny way of saying this, right? And it is that if startup founders come together, in India, as you know, arranged marriages are very common, right? So we have this joke for the ecosystem that maybe have a love marriage for your real life. But when you find a startup founder, use arranged marriage because otherwise you'll find somebody like you. You want to find somebody who is different from you, right? If you're a strong techie, find somebody from a business side and vice versa. And what's actually made this come to life in a big way, and and we've been beneficiaries of that, is recent work on personality. As you know, the new definition of personality is that these are the immutable traits that you have, or mostly immutable traits that you have. And some of this work on big five, or also called ocean traits, O-C-E-A-N traits, which is grounded in data, unlike, you know, the earlier personality surveys that were there, they accelerate this process of self-knowledge. And self-knowledge is the prerequisite to being able to build good teams. Because 
if I'm not good at abstract thinking, that I must find somebody who's good at abstract thinking, right? And so on and so forth. So knowing who you are, you know, accelerates the process of better team building. And I think we are all beneficiaries of that. This is percolating in the whole ecosystem as we speak. And, you know, the other thing I would say is that the difference between social sciences and certainly software and even STEM is that you are rejected in a different way by the system, right? So if you, if you come, I may be a good programmer. My identity may be that, hey, I'm a hotshot programmer. But when I submit my code to the compiler, the compiler doesn't know that. And it has no respect for my intentions. <laughs> and therefore, if it's not good code, it'll throw it out and you got to deal with it. You got to go back and fix it. It doesn't matter who you are, right? But let's say I'm a marketeer or I'm in social sciences, then it's not a faceless system that's rejecting me. It's usually another human being that's rejecting me. And dealing with that rejection, I believe, is a little harder <laughs> than dealing with physics rejecting you or a compiler rejecting you. So I think because of that, some of us techies learn to deal with this kind of rejection well, and then that becomes a basis for learning. So I think failure is a prerequisite to any meaningful learning. And some of that learning goes into building better teams. And in our case, of course, we are a completely volunteer-driven organization. So that process has its own dynamic as well. One thing that interests me is the contradictions everywhere. And so <laughs> in India, as you describe it, it seems like there's many iterations possible, many sprints, if you will, many variables. So you can iterate quickly, spot problems, create new solutions. However, how is that applicable to a completely different ecosystem, if you will, someplace that doesn't have as many variables, perhaps? Could you talk at all about how India can at once be a beacon for the Web 3.0 or the beyond Web 3.0, and at the same time aware of how it might be special? See, because India is very diverse, right? You know, there are many languages, there are many provinces or states, with many cuisines. You know, you think of India, the best way to think of India is like Europe, right? It's got a lot of variation. And then there's a part of India that lives in the 21st century, but there is sadly some part of India that still lives in the 19th century, right? So there are many, many variations. So if you really want population scale to happen in any area, you need diversity. There isn't one size fits all. And each of those pockets that we're talking about, you know, easily end up being 20, 30, 40, sometimes 100 million people. So the joke that we have is, and this is what some of our global South nations in Africa, that's the language they use. If it works in India, it'll work anywhere in the world. Right? Because there is a part of India that looks like Silicon Valley. There is a part of India that looks like, pick a country in Africa, Ethiopia, Morocco, Kenya, you know, South Africa. So if you can get population scale in India, it has only happened because there has been this experimentation that yielded these innovations that went and filled all these nooks and corners and niches that are there. And one of those niches will look like something else elsewhere. So that is one way to think of it. And the other way of thinking about it is that, look, you're building a playground. That playground concept still applies to any other ecosystem that you go to. So one way is to copy just the app. The second is to copy the playground, right? And that produces the app. An app is a metaphor for what we are talking about. And if you can copy the playground, then you're almost sure that something will come up there. Even if you don't do that, you could still copy the relevant app and that would still work in that playground. You had talked about wanting to develop India into a product nation. Could you talk a little bit about what that means? So we tend to think that, you know, there is a shift in how value is captured in the value chain. So if you go back to maybe 40 years, 30, 40 years ago, you had a situation that if you, for example, drilled oil in Saudi Arabia and refined it, pick another place in Dubai and sold it in India. At every part of the value chain, you made money, right? And 
Another example of that would be if you cotton was grown in place A and then you turned it into yarn in place B and then cloth in place C and then clothes in place D, all those four places would make money. To some extent, that is still true, but the amount of money that they make is very, very different. So, for example, if you look at the Wintel system, the PC ecosystem, the Windows and Intel ecosystem, for most of the time, Intel and Microsoft have captured 86% of the profit pool of that ecosystem. Now, keep in mind that that 14% includes the person who made a screen, which is usually complex. It's not easy. It includes the person who made the hard disk drive. Again, complex, not easy. Multi-layer PCB, you know, designed it, populated it put it all together, sold it, and they only got 14%, right? Now, if you go to the iPhone, iPhone is, you know, in one of these reports was 103 or 104% of the profit pool is with Apple because other companies give it to Apple as a loss because they get volumes, they get credibility, and so on and so forth. So there is almost a new ecosystem that has emerged where value capture is very different from the more equitable kind of value capture that used to happen earlier. Now, in India's case, we mostly, our structure of the economy is in the low value capture parts of the value chain. So I'll give you an example. India has, because of this deregulation in India that happened in 91, 92, it opened up And after that, it has learned how to build world-class services companies. So some of the IT services companies of India are world-class. They are TCS, Infosys, and companies like that. Indian airlines are pretty good, and our hospitals are doing well. Our mobile services companies are very good. Um, I've lived, as I said here, so I can compare the two. But, you know, the value isn't in these companies. So you have Cisco, which is generally having a bad profit year, recent years are not so good, yet is able to make more money than the top five European mobile operators, which, by the way, includes Vodafone, which is the largest, Telefonica, which is number three, so on and so forth. Airbus and Boeing make more money than all the airlines put together. Pfizer makes more money. I know the pre-COVID numbers, post-COVID numbers must be even higher for them. But Pfizer makes more money than the top 100 hospital chains in the U.S. put together. I could go on and on, right? Microsoft had a low profit year in 2013, and yet in that year made more money than the top 20 IT services companies of the world put together. So therefore, you know, the question for India is, yes, it's in one part of this value chain, but can it be in this other part of the value chain? So what is this characteristic of this other part of the value chain? is that it is usually a circle of three or a circle of five, right? There are a handful of people. How many search engines do you know? (laughs) It's probably a circle of one and a half now, right? So almost for everything, there is a small number of people that are there. And that is where you want, you know, some of your companies to play. And can India do that? India has done that with space. India has done that somewhat with the digital infrastructure. Can we do that with telecom equipment? Can we do that with some of the other things that are there? For example, pharmaceuticals, especially with this new type of disease models that are coming up. Can we do that in AI? You know, those are the possibilities that exist. So iSpirit's mission, in some sense, is to propel India into a place where it is in that circle of five over a period of time. And we see it as a 30-year journey. We are only 10 years into it, so 20 more years to go. (laughs) Well, I believe you can do it. (laughs) I'm curious, you have an opportunity though, rather than to become like what's already there, to to innovate and and redefine. And it sounds like that's very much a part of your DNA. So what are some, some areas that you could talk about that could use some improvement regarding the 1.5 search engines and to the top five leaders in each industry? You know, for example, I mean, payments is a good example. I mean, there were four payment solutions that were already there when we started looking at it. There were Visa, MasterCard, there were Alipay and WeChat Pay as an example. And 
we could have built a replica of one of them for India. But, you know, what difference would it have made if even if you're 20, 30 percent better, you know, doesn't help you fill that white space that you need to. You have to think from ground up, right? And you have to think from first principles, which is what we talked about in the earlier part of the conversation. So we were able to, by taking that approach, we were able to come up with a payment system that ultimately all payment systems move money from place A to place B. But, you know, it was able to do it in a fundamentally different way. And usually in every payment system, there are there are custodians of your money and you're moving money from one custodian to another custodian, one Venmo account to another Venmo account you know, one bank account to another bank account, right? So that's common to all payment systems. That's true even for the Indian payment system, which is called UPI. But usually what happens is that before you move the money, you need to get permission from the owner of that money to debit your account. And that permission is collected by whoever is the custodian of that money. If it's a Venmo account, then Venmo comes and collects permission from me. If I have a Wells Fargo account, then Wells Fargo gives me the checkbook on which I give them the permission or app or uh, I go to their website to give them permission. So in India, we were able to decouple the permission collector role from the custodian role. And in UPI, the permission is collected by a, a third party, a fintech essentially. But since that permission is digitally signed and non-reputable, it is still my permission. And therefore, the custodian says, sure, I'll go ahead and debit Sharad's account. By decoupling the two roles, we were able to foster more innovation. We could have specialized players. The old players who knew how to be the custodian of my money remained that. But the people who knew for a complex India, you know, over languages and feature phones, smartphones, you know, variety of interfaces that people are going to use. We were able to create specialized startups that came up who could deal with the collection part, the permission collection part of this. And by giving them a protocol that allows them to interoperate with each other, we made it very simple for a whole system to be created. Now, that's a different kind of a payment system. And that's, as you know, has gone on to become very successful. Now, the question is, can we do that for AI? You know, what will it take for us to create responsible AI, which is, you could say, a societal obligation that we have as we go forward. And by, again, you know, not thinking of simply the data economy that you have either in US or in China, but thinking from first principles, you end up sometimes, you don't have to, but sometimes you end up at a different place. And then you try it out and see if it works. And that's how you get different results. So the key part for us is that we believe that technology changes the norms of society. So we start on this idea that technology should be value-based technology instead of value-free technology. And as you can see, you know, by thinking in that way, it has many implications. And I'm happy to elaborate on them later. But it has many implications on how you think of the world. Clearly, you can see we think of value-based technology rather than value-free technology. Could we dip into some of those implications with that mindset? Sure. For example, when you do digital identity, which is one of the key parts of India Stack, that's the foundational part, there can be a dystopian view of digital identity. The dystopian view of digital identity is that it makes somebody else very powerful because they can now track you no matter where you go. So it can be a powerful company or worse, it can be a powerful state, which can have a 360 degree view of what is happening. And then you could create social credit scores to shape behavior. And, you know, it's a very dystopian view of what can happen with technology. That would have been terrible in a democracy because that would, by changing the balance of power between citizen and the state, you essentially are destroying democracy, right? So the question for us was, how do we create the benefits of digital identity where the agency is with the citizen? If it changes the balance of power in favor of the citizen, not in the favor of the state. Now that requires, of course, policy, but Policy can be changed tomorrow, right? A new political party wins the elections, <laughs> a new bureaucrat comes in and they can change policy. So we needed to create technology that would not make it possible, that was flexible in some places so that you could innovate on top of that. 
but was restrictive by design, fundamentally restrictive in other places so that the new policymakers could not change the policy. And even if they wanted to, the underlying infrastructure would not allow them to do that, right? And so, so for example, in India, so when you use the digital identity, there's no record that is kept of your digital identity. So you can use the digital identity to prove that I'm a real person and that person is Sharad. But there is my digital ID system, my ID, which is a number, 12-digit number, is not stored there, right? Now, you can have a policy say, thou shall not store Sharad's digital 12-digit ID, but that can be changed. But how can you then build a virtual token system that even if they want to do it, there is no way for them to do it? So now, if you have that virtual token system, and that's the only thing that is available, and that's supplemented by a law that is hard to change, then you get a techno-legal approach that puts you in this direction. And frankly, in, in the case of digital identity, there was legitimate concern from civil society that, hey, these guys are talking about this, but is this true? You know, they've never seen this before. And so it became in our Supreme Court, the highest court, it was the second longest litigated case that went on. And it was a five-judge kind of a judgment which finally cleared this. And they did it very beautifully because that's what created the trust. Because before they did it, they said, hey, we need to know what is privacy. What do we mean by privacy? I mean, if you are asserting that this is privacy preserving, you know, how do we take your assertion on board? What is privacy? So meanwhile, there was another case that was going on, which was about privacy. So they escalated the importance of that case. That became a nine in a 9-0 judgment that privacy means this and it's a fundamental right in India. And I think it was the first jurisdiction anywhere in the world where it became a fundamental right. And that's very important in India because when the Indian Supreme Court rules something as fundamental right, it is deemed to be part of the basic constitution, which even the legislature cannot change very easily. The bar to change it is very, very high, right? And so that happened. And then this Aadhaar case, the digital identity case, which had been put on hold, waiting for this judgment, was revived. And then about 14 months later, the court said, now if we interpret this digital identity in light of this 9-0 judgment that came last year, we can now opine whether this compromises privacy or not. And thankfully, they went on to say it does not, right? And they put some more protections in place which was a really good thing that they did. And so that in society then created the confidence that the norms and the values that this digital identity system represents is in tune with the Indian democracy. And when these things are not resolved in this way, then societies are often animated and you know they have friction and they have problems and that technology will not take root because it becomes an instrument for changing what had been previously agreed, right? And that's what's perhaps happening to social media as we speak. So for us, a value-based system is very important. Now that places a burden on public technologists because we have to be very different from, let's say, nuclear technologists. Digital public technologists are different animals than nuclear technologists. When nuclear technology came, <clears throat> there was a different paradigm. The paradigm was you can be as flexible as you want, it is society's responsibility to amplify the good use cases and dam damp down the bad use cases. You know, there was no requirement for nuclear technologists. And then, of course, I'm slightly exaggerating to make my point for them to be value-based nuclear technologists. It was as permissive as they wanted to be. This is a case that is happening with stem cell research. But when you look at us in India, we chose to be value-based and we said, no, we understand this will have implications on society. So for health, for example, we have a published paper which lists down the 10 normative principles for a good health system, which we as public technologists ought to follow, but we think the regulator should follow and the market should follow. And it has generated enormous amount of debate. It's a peer-reviewed paper. I'm one of the authors. Vijay Chandru is another author. And maybe you can include a link to that paper later. But now by fostering a discussion as to what are the normative principles behind a good health system, 
that everybody must conform to in the playground, which means public technologies, private innovators, as well as policymakers, common principles, then allows you to build a better health system than would have been the case where everybody is jostling for power to figure out what that system would be. Well, I'm intrigued. It sounds like the applications are vast. Mm -hmm. And there's some parallels to blockchain, it seems, in terms of the decentralized nature, the agency on the part of the participant. And regarding blockchain, I heard that quantum computing could be a potential threat to the sanctity or the security of blockchain as uncrackable, if you will. Are there similar threats or tripwires, if you will, that'll signal whether or not you need to change regarding the India stack? No, I'm not really aware of that. But we do look at blockchain in our way of thinking. We look at six key concepts that are important to us. And we love three of them a lot. And three, we, we are, it's more conditional kind of adoption of them. The three that we are strongly in love with is the immutability aspect, the programmability aspect, and the zero knowledge proofs. So in other words, zero knowledge proofs are very important for me in a low trust society to be able to assert claims, you know, which I can assert them without compromising my privacy, right? And so that creates trust in the system. We are not so sure about proof of stake and proof of work, right? And we think, you know, those are interim measures. We may need to think about another way of thinking about this and there's some work happening there. We think that everything is public is useful in some constructs for creating trust. But obviously, my health data cannot be public, right? And so, so it's not useful. It's conditional in that respect. And similarly, because we believe in value-based technology, we run into this controversy with the purest on the blockchain side on permissionless. Because remember, in our conception of technology, there is a permissive part and there's a restrictive part. We need to have consensus in society to determine which part is permissive, which part is restrictive. So this permissionless is important in some cases and it's not. So we tend to divide these six concepts into two categories, three that we love and we'll use all the time and three we will use based on the situation that we're talking about. I don't know much about this quantum issue that you're talking about. I've heard of it, but I have no, I don't have any deep insight on that. Well, that's perfectly fine. Neither do I. I just wanted to see what your, what your thoughts were on it. But that's India Stack certainly sounds like a step in the right direction, maybe several steps in the right direction. And how far along are you? Like, if you look at the maturity of India Stack, is it in its kind of nascent stages, or is this a mature system that's ready to be shared and deployed around the world? So India Stack came from this idea, what is the plumbing that we need in society? And, and we needed it to be very minimal in nature because you want to leave room for private innovation. So India Stack, the plumbing that we agreed back in time many, many years ago, was that it is the plumbing that mediates the flow of people, money, and information. The flow of people is fully done in India. It's now, there is a newer version that we were able to build, which is open source. That's at mosip.io. That's in 11 countries. I think about 94 million people in those countries have already adopted it. And that will quickly grow to about 350 million because that's the population of those 11 countries. And we have many in the queue. So once we get more traction with this, they'll come on board. And that's a fully public infrastructure. So countries can adopt this as they like. So that's doing very well. The flow of money is the UPI system that I talked about, and that's taken off in a very big way in India. I like to mention this just to get people's attention that it's so big in India that it does more payments than China, Korea, US combined. So it accounts for more than 50% of the digital payment transactions in the world. It's very big now, and it's continues to grow at 6 to 8% a month. So it'll overtake MasterCard. The global transaction volume of MasterCard, I think about eight months or so from now, right? And so because wow. this is growing at 6 to 8% a month and MasterCard is growing 8% a year, so the two will collide somewhere. So that's a big system. We focused hard on 
the digital infrastructure that mediates the flow of information, both personal information as well as aggregate training information. The personal information part we deployed for financial data first. Remember, our first focus was financial inclusion, and that's a new type of a system. It's called data empowerment and protection architecture. That's big already. It's growing at 32% month on month. It's connected to over a billion bank accounts, and it's doing very well. And recently, a new law was passed in India that makes it now mandatory for the same system or same type of system to be used for all sectors in India. So that part is off to a great start. And in the coming weeks, we will launch the remaining part of this, which is a digital infrastructure that fosters collaboration between modelers, AI modelers, and training data sets, if they don't happen to be in the same company. So for example, the health data may be with the hospitals and the startup that is building an AI model to help with diagnostics, you know, is obviously outside the hospital. So they need to collaborate and what would be a safe and effective way to collaborate that's good for privacy, but also good for innovation. So that system is a new system. It's different from the U.S. systems. U.S. system is very good for innovation, not so good for privacy. The European system is very good for privacy, not good for innovation. And China, I'm not going to talk about it at all, but this is a different kind of a balance and people can read about it at depa.world. So that's going to be launched in the foreseeable future. So that basically takes care of what we see as India stack right now. But we are focused on health stack because that's needed. We are focused on telecom stack because that may throw up Indian mobile equipment providers that may create successful businesses as we go forward. Health, of course, we have challenges because we've got to do it at $200 per capita rather than $2,000 per capita that most European countries do or $700 per capita that Thailand does. So we have to completely reimagine the health system. So we've been thinking about that. So there are many things to do, as I mentioned, but India stack by itself as flow of people, money and information is mostly complete. Only one little bit is left. So the focus has shifted to other things in the future. That sounds amazing. Those numbers are incredible, that growth rate. Are there any challenges that you're coming up against in terms of policy or competition? Because it seems like you're coming at it from a very pure position where you just want to help people, give them, give them agency, and bring everyone to the table. I was just curious, uh, what are some of the challenges that you're facing? So what are the measures of success? So one, of course, is how many citizens does it touch? But who touches the citizens? So take UPI, for example. UPI is merely a protocol, right? But what touches the systems is actually those permission-taking apps. And those are apps in the private sector. So the question is, are those apps still flourishing? You know, if indeed this is a system that is going to foster innovation, then the entry barriers for new apps should be relatively low. And there should be, therefore, new apps that should be coming up all the time to fill new niches, you know, that digital payments hasn't gone to. That is the real test because our fundamental belief, which comes from something that was there but codified so beautifully by Vannevar Bush, we are big fans of your MIT Dean of Engineering, Vannevar Bush, and, you know, especially his seminal paper or memo, you know, Science the Endless Frontier, that the real innovation is always a partnership between some kind of public good and private innovation, right? And that public good can be a GPS, which allows Uber to happen. It can be university research that allows Google to happen, or it could be DARPA that allowed Cisco to happen, and, and you know, and so on and so forth. Fundamentally, you know, our belief is that India's hard problems have to be solved by the market and market innovators. So we are merely enablers of those market innovators, right? And while we revel in the success of those innovators solving those problems at scale, the real success is that those innovators came about and are able to solve those problems. So I think from that perspective, we are kind of pleased. And it's not because these principles of unbundling, of creating infrastructure are not new. You know, I used to work for AT&T at one time. 
and many of your listeners may be too young to know, but if you ever took a landline from the old AT&T days, pre-divesture and trivesture, you got a choice of four phones. <laughs> you could take whichever one that you wanted, you know. And so if you were a phone manufacturer, that time those phones were rotary phones or push-button phones. You know, you had to go to AT&T and beg them to add them in that short list of four or five. The barriers to innovate were very, very high. And then people said, okay, you know, as long as you comply to the standard, you can have any phone that you like. And then you had aisle full of phones, you know, some shaped like soaps and some shaped like this and that. And, you know, you know that revolution. What was that revolution? You unbundled the exchange from the phone by putting some standard in the middle. So this is what we are doing in some respects by creating this kind of an unbundling and let the market bundle it in whichever way they like, we are actually reducing barriers of entry for innovators. And therefore, more innovators are coming and everybody is a beneficiary in that playground. The innovators benefit, the citizens, the ordinary people, they get solutions that they would not have got. India benefits. So that's really not an idea that's unique to us. It's an idea that's been borrowed Mostly from the U.S. Uh, because U.S. success is because of this model that Vannevar Bush brought to life through his memo, whether it's in life sciences, mRNA, or whether it's in digital, which is, of course, internet or in any other area, GPS, you know. So it's been a U.S. idea, which you can say India is also now adopted and is trying to implement in some sectors. You have an interesting profile in terms of being entrepreneurial, but also working in some pretty massive organizations and a foot in each camp, if you will. And I was curious, does that inform the way that you're looking at India Stack and investing in people? I also wanted to ask you, you were an angel investor. Looking at your LinkedIn profile, looks like formally you've stopped. Are you still involved with angel investing? You know, what has happened is that our iSpirit rule is that I can't invest in any area that iSpirit is involved. And earlier, that was only financial inclusion. Then it became health. Then it became logistics. So I'm, I'm now, I, I did some in agri, for example. But I'm, my hope is every year I wake up and I make two resolutions to myself, which don't meet. One is I should restart my blog or some form of blogging. Or I used to enjoy because it clarifies my mind. It's not so much for others, but for myself. And the second is I will go back to angel investing because I truly enjoy being a proxy entrepreneur. But, you know, right now what is happening is I comfort myself by saying the following, right? Which is that if you make a two by two, what's an entrepreneur? I mean, the modern day entrepreneur is somebody who wants to dent or ding the universe and make money by dinging the universe. This is what a modern day entrepreneur is. So if you make a two by two, on one side, you say, do you ding the universe and do you not ding the universe? So if I'm, let's say, a restaurant in Columbus, Ohio, I lived there for a, for a year or 18 months. And, you know, I discovered there's no Korean restaurant there and I set up a Korean restaurant. I'm not dinging the universe. I'm filling a gap in the market. So there are two types of entrepreneurship, ding the universe entrepreneurship and don't ding the universe entrepreneurship. Second is that there is two ways to make a contribution, make money or choose not to make money. So iSpirit has become or is the box, which is ding the universe, but do it without making money, right? And it's fun because so it satiates your part of your need to be an entrepreneur <laughs> because you are trying to ding the universe. And it's a it's almost like a unique quadrant. You know, nobody thinks about that quadrant at all. And that's the quadrant that we live in. And it's a lot of fun. And of course, for people like me, we call ourselves post-economy. We can choose to not make more money, but not everybody is like that. For most people, they do that during part-time. So they have a day job and they would do that. And some of our young volunteers choose to do it full-time and we give them a very small living wage. But then we cap it to two or three years because we don't want them to get used to this. We want them to go back and actually go from ding the universe for no money to the quadrant, which is ding the universe for money. Because we want the richest Indians to be those private innovators solving real problems on the ground, right? So, so and we have had some success there. Some of our young volunteers, under 30 volunteers, have gone on to become 
successful entrepreneurs after their stint of full-time volunteering at iSpirit. So we are very pleased about that because that's teaching them how to ding the universe with no money and then do it for money. And that's really our model. So that's the backstory to that. That's Hmm. wonderful. Could you share a story that comes to mind of one of those volunteers that went on to start their own venture? We've been around for, as I said, officially for 10 years. We are essentially a volunteer network. We existed as a volunteer network from 2009 to 2013 without any legal entity, right? Because we were purely volunteers. We didn't need money. We didn't have... So if you don't need money, you don't even need a legal entity because you could just be a volunteer network. And then we started needing a little bit of money for this living wage that I talked to you about and travel and things like that. So we created a legal entity and the legal entity has been there from 2013. So you can think of our genesis from whichever point that you like. So, But if you go from 2009 onwards, there are only four times that we have called our volunteers heroes. We are very stingy in that way. <laughs> we are all our heroes, but they're sometimes you know, crazily good heroes. And one of them, his name is Nikhil Kumar, and he was instrumental in taking this UPI system. If you build a playground, you got to get the players to come in, right? And at that time, the VCs and other entrepreneurs, they didn't want to come in. They said, this system is not like anything we have in the US, not like anything that we have in China. How can it succeed? In fact, the biggest company that we have, which is PhonePay, their VC withdrew their term sheet when they decided to do UPI. So at that time, to do something like this was very counterintuitive. And The volunteer who kind of cajoled through education to get everybody in place was all of 26 years old. His name is Nikhil at that time, and he did a great job. And eventually, we called him out as a volunteer hero, then went on to set up. He then stopped iSpirit volunteer. We have a cooling off period because you can't be both making money and on the same thing that we are doing. He went on to focus on other parts of financial inclusion and built a VC-funded company called Setu, S-E-T-U, which is an Indian word for bridge, and then had a good exit. And he has a lock-in. He is finishing his lock-in there. And I can give you many, many examples. We have, you know, some of us, for example, use some of your people may remember SlideShare as, does anybody remember SlideShare? Yeah. So SlideShare was built by three founders. One of them is Amit Ranjan. He sold this. It had very little VC money and it was bought by LinkedIn, as you know, for a reasonably good price. And since the cap table was mostly founders and employees, those founders did very well for themselves. But despite having done so well, Amit Ranjan became a full-time volunteer to ding the universe. And he's one of our four volunteer heroes. In fact, the most recent one in January of this year, we called him out. Because he went on to build a system that's called DigiLocker. So you can see this movement from you can start like a Nikhil as a young volunteer, start in the quadrant, which is ding the universe for no money and then go and ding the universe for money. Or in case of Amit Ranjan, ding the universe for money and then say, look, I love dinging the universe. Let me come and ding the universe for no money. That's an interesting dynamic that we have discovered. But it's the dinging the universe that makes entrepreneurship so addictive. It's not the money. Believe me, money is a byproduct. That's not the main motivation for most entrepreneurs. For most missionary entrepreneurs, you know, Paul Graham has this wonderful thing about missionary and mercenary entrepreneurs. And he makes an argument that missionary entrepreneurs outperform mercenary entrepreneurs because they're on a mission, right? And money is a byproduct of that mission. In our case, there's no money. <laughs> there's no byproduct. But nevertheless, the mission is the same that we want to ding the universe. So it's another way of thinking about building an ecosystem. That's great. It sounds like you can go back and forth too. Yes, yes. And we encourage our, uh, our volunteers to do that because that's how both of those quadrants get populated. I like the idea of DigiLocker. And I understand it's, it's domestic within India. Is there a possibility of that becoming global where I can have my passport or whatever I need and a DigiLocker globally? Yes. So DigiLocker, there are, I think, because of all this storytelling about India stack, it was to be very quiet and only focused on India. But because of G20, India had the presidency till October for a year, till October of this year. And Back in September last year, they said we should talk about this to others. And now there are 38 countries that are in the queue to adopt DigiLocker right now. 
So I think it'll take a year or so for them to get it in place. So it'll travel. Remember, all these are open. DigiLocker is a manifestation of something called DigiLocker system, which is nothing but a protocol, interoperable protocol. So for example, in India, digital signatures is a protocol. It's just a protocol. All people who offer this are private players. So remember, our goal is to get the kernel in place. And very often that kernel is a protocol. UPI is a protocol. All the innovation happens outside of that, right? And so DigiLocker is also a system like this. But there are 38 countries that want the same manifestation because they think it's going to be useful. And you can keep your license and passport or any other document, you know, your educational certificates or your own personal documents. But usually the modality that it's being used for is that people issue documents into DigiLocker. So when the government issues the passport into DigiLocker and you show your passport to somebody else, they're guaranteed that this has not been tampered with. It's basically a very, very simple system and it has utility. So in India, you're not required to carry any of these paper documents. So I, you know, I don't have to show them a physical identity, a physical passport. If a traffic cop stops me, I don't have to produce a physical license. Why? Because the law in India was then modified to accept whatever is there in the DigiLocker as equally relevant presentation of the same documents. Is there anything that we didn't touch on that you feel that we should highlight before we close? No, I I think you covered a lot of things. We are mission-based. We want to create a better society. Our focus, although is India, but our work is not limited to India. This is why our depa.world, because we think if you've done something good, that digital infrastructure should be available to everybody for free. That's been our mindset for digital identity. Therefore, mosip.io is available for free for everybody. So we welcome volunteers from everywhere in the world. And if any of your listeners want to know more about it, then they can go to volunteers.ispirt.in. And there's a volunteer handbook there. That would be a good starting point to understand how the volunteer model works. Sharad, this has all been fascinating. I'm a big believer in what you're doing, and I definitely want to keep track. And thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Rise and Search podcast. I hope that our conversation has sparked some new ideas and given you valuable insights that you can carry forward in your own journey. Until next time, eyes on the horizon. Eyes on the horizon.